Welcome to another episode of Motorsport of the Americas. This week we're joined by Ian Lacey from Ian Lacey Racing out in Utah. Uh, Ian has a long and wide range of experience in racing, going back to his start working as a mechanic and finding a, you know, what he described as kind of a, a legal outlet uh, for his driving passion by taking on the challenge of autocross. Uh, Ian had success after that as an open-wheel driver for many years, and he now runs a team that's garnered a big haul of trophies in SRO, which is a, a sports car series that we haven't really touched on too, too much to this point. Uh, so you get to hear all about, you know, what SRO is, the differences between uh, sports car and open-wheel racing, and uh, where he hopes to find himself on track with his team in 2024. Uh, you know, so another really interesting conversation with someone that's uh, that's been at it for a long while, and uh, you know, a, a new way to get into the sport as well. You know, he got his start in autocross, which is uh, something that I personally looked into a little bit uh, last winter. Kind of got talked out of it to a certain extent. Uh, bit of an issue with when you only have one car if you take that car to go racing and break it uh, that does make getting to work the next day a bit of a trick uh, but it is a very accessible uh, you know way to to go racing and you know I, I reached out to some people in an SCCA uh, you know kind of a, a group chat on on discord uh, for the local you know the local club that does autocross and it was a you know really welcoming group uh, that really encouraged me to you know get started and uh, you know we're more than happy to answer all the questions that I had uh, so it definitely seems like a good community uh, to get involved in and and you know they're not gonna you know they don't take themselves too seriously uh, so potentially another avenue uh, you know to kind of get into you know getting out on some sort of a track it's, it's it's typically at an airport or a large parking lot and uh you know you're you're basically just trying to navigate a course and avoid cones as best you can uh but again another another great way to get started if you know maybe that's you've come to these podcasts because maybe you're looking to to get into that uh a little bit yourself we do have some more uh, interesting news items to get to this week you may have heard about uh shock decision uh Lewis Hamilton to join Ferrari starting in 2025. I think that's one of those those things that happens every now and then in a sport that you follow, where people that don't really pay any attention to that sport, uh, you know, start asking you questions and, and what you think about it. Uh, you know, that is certainly something that they kind of broke through to to you know all sorts of mainstream uh, you know media coverage last week. Actually, very similar to when Lionel Messi uh, you know announced that he was coming to MLS. The same kind of one of those seismic moments in a, in a sport where people that even have a, a passing interest in F1 uh, were, you know, just really kind of shocked uh, to hear that, you know, one of the most iconic names in the history of the sport is is joining perhaps the most iconic name in the history of F1. Uh, but before that, there was a, a very brief period of time where the biggest development in F1 last week uh, was the news that Formula One management had declined uh, Andretti Global's application to join F1 as the 11th team on the grid. Uh, this this wasn't necessarily surprising to a lot of people. A lot of people didn't really expect, based on you know what the team principals uh, had been saying, you know, what other people around Formula Management saying. You know, there was very little expectation uh, that they were actually going to allow a team to join the grid. Uh, some people. And I, I, I think this is kind of along the lines of how the decision was made. Uh, you know, very simply, just looking at the the big, big pie of money that F1 is now, and uh, not wanting to slice that into eleven pieces instead of ten. Yeah, you know, there, there, there is a, a large fee that that Andretti uh, would have had to have paid and was prepared to play to get onto the grid. Uh, that would have kind of mitigated that financial hit a little bit. Um, but, you know, there's certainly been a lot of people, and if you take a little bit of time, uh, you know, on YouTube or wherever else you might get your, your racing news from, uh, that just said, look, this is this is pretty clear cut. Um, they're making lots of money, and they don't want to share it. Um, you know, which it is understandable, but, it you know, you see other leagues and other sports that are trying to grow their fan base. Uh, and one of the ways that they go about growing their fan base is by expansion teams, by making the league bigger, by bringing in new teams from new areas. Uh, so that to hear that the FOM, uh, you know, pretty clearly wasn't interested in that uh, was, was, you know, was, was pretty disappointing, especially as, uh, you know, as an Italian-American myself, uh, the Andretti's being involved in F1 was something that uh, I, I was really, really excited 
um, to, to even think about it and even have that as a possibility. I think it would have been, I think it would have been great to have a, a team, you know, fully based in the U.S. Um, you know, get their way into into F one. You know, F one seems to be happy enough to come over here uh, three times a year and and put on you know, races and, you know, bringing a big haul of money, uh, you know, from, from ticket sales or particularly, you know, the race down in Miami, uh, the race in Las Vegas, uh, you know, so they're, they're more than happy to, you know, try and grow the American fan base. And, you know, obviously TTS has had a big role in that as well. Uh, so it does, does seem a little short-sighted that they, they turn around and said that they didn't want to have, uh, you know, didn't want to have the Andretti's become involved in F1. I think if you're a, uh, even if you're not a fan of motorsport at all, you just just about anyone, you know, you know who the Andretti's are. You know that Mario, uh, you know, is, is considered to be one of the best race car drivers of all time. Uh, he won the F1 championship himself in 1978. You know, the last American to do so. Uh, you know, his younger son, or his his son Michael, uh, you know, is the one that that runs their team now. He competed in F1 himself, and uh, you know they have a great Formula E team. They have a successful IndyCar team. They have cars in Indy NXT. They do sports car racing. I mean, they really uh, are are very you know professional, um, you know, motivated and successful team uh, in a lot of different racing categories. So you know, for me personally, it would have been really exciting uh, to have a, a team. You know, fully based in the U.S., that not not having their cars built uh, somewhere else, getting their engines from another team, and and you know the fact that they had Cadillac uh, that was going to back them and was going to come in as another manufacturer, uh, just seemed like there were so many you know positive possibilities uh, with the Andretti's uh, to come on board, and, and it seems you know at least for the time being uh, that that has all been put on hold. And uh, the the. Probably the smallest, tiniest bit of news that came out last week, uh, you know, with, with Haas. Haas will continue as the only, you know, American-ish based F1 team. And uh, it very quickly came out and squashed any optimism that anyone might have had for how their car was going to do, at least in the early part of the season. Uh, their their new team principal was was... We'll share a link to the article. Very dismissive about how the season was going to get off. He basically said that uh, we will continue to be the slowest team on the grid uh, from the start of the season. And uh, you know, it's 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 interesting that they came out and you know, this is the preseason. Your preseason in any sport is the time for optimism. Talk about you know how you hope to do better than you did last year and and everyone's working really hard uh you know and and trying to you know design the car and get ready and you know and the drivers are rare and ready to go uh and then to come out and say well you know we finished last year back of the pack and uh that's where we expect to start off this season yes it's tough to get excited for uh so you know Haas, i don't really think of have done themselves any favors lately uh you know they they let guther steiner go uh, they seem pretty content to continue on, uh, you know, with the way that they've been doing things, and that way of doing things really hasn't been very successful uh, for the last, for the last, you know, at least the last three, maybe even four years. Uh, so yeah, so very, very, uh, it, you know, big, big news is to hear that you know Hamilton is going to Ferrari, and that's really kind of kicked off. Uh, you know, just a massive amount of uh, speculation and chatter as to what uh, you know what this season is gonna is gonna look like. Where you know we already know that there's one driver that is making a move to Ferrari. Uh, there's rumors that you know Alex Albon uh, is potentially gonna move on as well. There's an open seat at Mercedes. Uh, you know, but in the the little corner of F1 uh, that has a you know a clear kind of American aspect to it. Uh, Haas have basically told us not to expect anything early on in the season. And, uh, you know, so that really only just leaves us to pin our hopes on Logan Sargent and uh, hope that he's able to come back and, uh, you know, like we talked about before, close the gap to his teammate, uh, you know, when things get going. And, you know, it's probably just about another three weeks now uh, until we'll get to see what the cars look like out on track in F1 for the first time this season. Ah, and so with that, we'll get to our interview with Ian Lacey. And uh, you know, again, I really appreciate the, the amount of time that everyone, and Ian included, have been willing to, to give to us and come on the show and talk. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of kind of uh, got down into the, the nitty gritty a little bit, talking about, you know, the different uh, aspects to, you know, racing an open wheel car and, and what it can be like to drive a car, uh, you know, that doesn't have uh, ABS, doesn't have power steering, 
Um, and again, just just another really great story uh, that Ian was 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 very kind uh, with his time and with his words to share with us. So check that out, and uh, you know we'll we'll catch up on the other side. Okay, we're here today with Ian Lacey from Ian Lacey Racing, uh, based out of Utah, and he's been kind enough to spend some time with us uh, today to talk about you know, his, his own racing career and his experience so far, and and how he's kind of developed that into being a, a shop owner and a team owner, and and you know all the experience that he's had over. Uh, looks like you're looks like you're entering your your fourth decade of of motorsport now. Is that is that something that you're aware of, or you try not to be aware of? Do we, do we have to bring that up? <laughs> yeah it's it's been a it's been a long ride it's been a lot of fun and thanks for having us on the show yeah absolutely so how did you you know uh, you know just just a couple of years ago in 1993 how did you um how, how did you get your start in 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 racing yeah i got a lot of traffic tickets <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Me too. My, yeah 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 my dad was a bit of a gearhead and used to wake me up to watch formula one when i was little um He's always had sports cars and I, I kind of was interested in, in motorsports. Um, initially I was planning on being a pilot. I wanted to join the coast guard and kind of follow in the roots of my uncle. But as soon as I started driving myself, I realized that I really enjoyed it and pretty soon got convinced that I was better than average at it. And, uh, we kind of struggled to, to find an outlet. And initially I was doing the local autocross scene, um, in Northern California. And, uh, for graduation, dad sent me to the skip barber school at Sears point. So I did a three day school down there and one of the, they didn't officially give you lap times, but one of the instructors took some times on me and said that I was going quick enough to be in the A race group. So when I got home, you know, I wanted, I wanted to go racing and the folks weren't convinced. Um, so we were, we were struggling to try and find a cost effective way to kind of prove that it was an avenue that we should pursue. And we were looking at motorcycle racing as well. Um, ultimately dad found an ad for the Jim Russell racing school mechanics training program. And that was at Laguna Seca or we started at Laguna Seca. And in that program, you paid a small tuition and you basically worked for them for a year and they trained you pretty comprehensively how to care for a race car. And in addition, you got to do the school and we got a nine race, uh, championship for the mechanics, which I won. Um, so subsequently I stayed on at Russell as we moved up to Sonoma to Sears point, uh, Infineon, <laughs> whatever it's badged as these days. Um, and worked as an assistant instructor for a couple of years while I ran through their customer championships. So I've won the, you know, the, the regular uh, as well as the pro series, which was a three race, um, event. Um, so we won three championships with Russell and then, uh, being based at Sears point, um, one of the mechanics from the mechanic mechanics training program was working at a team called Stacy suspension systems, and they were running in the formula Mazda championship. Um, and after talking to a couple of folks, we decided to sign with them and we were able to win the championship in 98 and it kind of went on from there. Uh, that's interesting. You start, you know, I think everyone that we've talked to so far is a, a slightly different way that they first got started. Um, you know, autocross this is the first time autocross has come up. That that's something that I think it's something that if, if I had known that that was something that was around when I was a kid, um, you know, that that probably would have been something I was interested in. Is that it? Seems like it's still pretty accessible now in terms of you know, in terms of the cost and the time commitment, and and you can just kind of show up with, I mean just about any type of car. Uh, but did, did you really enjoy that autocross experience? And is that something that you did initially that's continued or did you, did you kind of move away from that uh, pretty early on? Uh, uh, we were in that scene for, uh, well, as long as out there 90. So yeah, about two years. Um, and yeah, we had a really good time. So it, interestingly enough, <laughs> this is kind of, let me back up the story just a little bit. There used to be a uh, 914, uh, GT, 
uh, it was a four cylinder car, but it had the flares on it parked down the street from me. And I used to sneak out of the house and go stare at that thing at night. It was so tough looking, you know, and ultimately a kid from, uh, the city next door bought it. And I chased him down one night and introduced myself and he and a couple of his buddies were already in the autocross scene with that car and with an RX seven. Um, so that's how I got introduced to it. And I, I had a couple of kids of the same gen, basically we all graduated the same year. And so we were, we were competing and ultimately joined the club and helped set up the racetracks and, and, you know, doing the whole thing. And so, yeah, that was, that was really neat. And it also got me some exposure to vintage cars, but sort of proper race cars in that there was a Ma Pa Lotus shop up in Northern California called Curtis Unlimited. And they had a Lotus 23, which they used to bring down to the autocross. And that was sort of the first real race car, even though it was vintage, you know, that was the first real race car that I got to spend some time around. And ultimately I went up and volunteered at their shop and, uh, learned very beginnings of, of how to build cars and, you know, had people that could mentor me and, and were also enthusiasts. So yeah, it was, it was a really good experience. Once I moved on and went to Russell, you know, we goofed around in the parking lots a little bit, but, uh, from that point on, we were either, you know, out on the street <laughs> or, uh, or, or racing on, on the proper racetracks. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I Again, like I said, it seems like that's definitely one of the more affordable ways to to kind of try it out, um, you know, and, and you know the, the the cost can kind of take off pretty quickly from there. Um, but that's inter- that's interesting as well. So you started off, you know, kind of almost immediately. Also, you know, being able to race a little bit because you were working on becoming a mechanic, uh, is that something that 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 helped you out along the way as well? That you know, you 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 weren't just a race car driver; you also had you know skills that uh, you know that, that you could use around racing. Yeah, um, you know, but I never, I, I got paid to be a race car driver finally towards the end of my active career, you know, but uh, I always had to find funding somehow. So, uh, A, you know, yeah, we, we could work on the cars, um, which ultimately led to being able to engineer the cars, at least in a trackside fashion, uh, but also it, having an understanding of how the systems work, I think makes you a better driver in that you have a better understanding of what you're doing, how it affects the car, um, how to deal with any, you know, problems uh, or failures, uh, if, if at all possible. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it, it, it makes you a well-rounded driver. And, and we see that a lot these days in that a lot of kids have never driven an H pattern gearbox. Now they're all driving paddle shifts right out of, right out of go-karts. Right. So they never start with heel toe, you know, they, they're just pulling on a paddle. So they don't really have a a great understanding maybe, or some of them of of how the gearbox works and therefore how's the paddle shifter system working? Can it be improved? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, we, we talked to a couple of drivers as well. We talked to his, uh, Nathan Saxon last week was a mechanical engineer and, you know, the, the, the squiggly lines on the charts all kind of make a lot more sense to him uh, than, you know, somebody like me that wouldn't, wouldn't really be able to translate what, uh, you know, what all those numbers and all the, all the data means. Um, right. So where did you, you know, ultimately, where did you uh, find, you know, find the most success as a, as a, as a race car driver or, or what was your, or, you know, your, your most enjoyable uh, racing experience? Gotcha. Yeah. Well, <laughs> That's a tough question. 98 was a really good year. Um, you know, we, we started on the back foot, uh, after the first race at Phoenix at the Oval, I think, gosh, I think we got the nose run over and we finished seventh or something of that sort. So we had to, to fight back the entire season, uh, all the way down to the last race to win that championship. But we won, I think seven of 11 races or something of that sort. And I think we had nine or 10 poles. So that was a really successful year with a really fun group of people. Kent Stacy, who was uh, the team principal over there. He's, he's, he's a character. He's really fun to be around. And, uh, my, my mechanic, his name was Kyle Hall. He's the kid that came from the Russell school. We still talk regularly to this day. So that was a really neat year, but ultimately I think that, you know, the, the favorite stuff that I got to run was with the open wheel cars, whichever form, uh, whether it was formula Mazda, formula Ford 2000, um, you know, those cars are just so pure and they work so well. They're really enjoyable to drive. And I think, 
the Van Diemen Ford is probably one of the best handling race cars I've ever driven. So those were really good times. Um, <clears throat> getting into the beginning of my sports car career, we, we had a lot of fun, um, you know, being paired with a gentleman driver. Oftentimes when you get in the car, you're not really near the front of the field and you got to put your head down and start passing people. So, you know, you come from 30th or something of that sort and finish in the top 10, you're feeling pretty good that day. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. That, that's, it's a pretty good feeling. I guess it's always a, a benefit that, you know, further back you start, the more room there is to, to work your way up the field. Uh, and you talked about the, the open wheel cars. Now the open wheel cars th that you drove, you know, did they have anything in the way of, you know, driver aids in turn, you know, it, think some of those you know there's no abs is there power steering like, power steering, like what, what type of stuff was in the car and wasn't in the car yeah so it, of course it depends on the class you're in in formula mazda you had adjustable brake bias and that was about it um when you moved into the <laughs> yeah and an hq gearbox and i think we had a little tacked on one of the earliest data systems that were commercially available on that car um, getting into the two liter stuff, then we're starting to get more advanced, uh, especially early on in my two liter career. Um, you know, that, that was an amazing series. We had better coverage than Toyota Atlantic. Um, the resources needed to be competitive were were vast. I mean, we had multiple sets of dampers and so on that car. We finally started to get, uh, adjustable sway bars, um, in addition to the brake bias, but they're still pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so. As your your racing career, you know, kind of continued. At what point did you did you ever come to the point where you decided that you wanted to to have your own shop and start your own team, or did that just kind of something that just kind of evolved over time? Yeah, that was always sort of a you know a fallback, if you will. Um, it 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 happened pretty late for me. We we I started my first shop in two thousand eight. Uh, prior to that, I was always just coaching or engineering for other teams running different series. So, you know, yes, we kind of thought about it, but uh, ultimately when it happened, it was, the timing was pretty good and, and it's worked out really well. And have you been, have you been in Utah, uh, you know, right from the beginning, all the way back to 2008? Uh, to, yeah, I moved out here in 2007. So um, I had been living down in the Phoenix area and I, I'd basically been moving around the West um, for either different opportunities or I was living down in Phoenix with a, a girlfriend there. And when that relationship soured, I needed to grow up, if you will, and buy a house and, and be an adult and, you know, would have liked to have been back in California, but wouldn't have had any money left over to do anything. So real estate was quite reasonable out here. A friend of mine moved out and, uh, you know, we're, we're five miles away from this brand new racing facility that was just fantastic at that time, go-kart track and supermoto and, and of course the road course. So, um, pretty quickly met a family out here. So the car that I raced in 1998 at that time was owned by a gentleman over in Salt Lake city. So Kent Stacy put me in touch with, with the owner and he and a bunch of friends of another family, um, they had four formula Mazdas. So pretty quickly they brought me down to, to look after their cars. And then we were able to grow that into a company called Raceco for a few years. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And is that the, uh, the, the track there, the Utah, the Utah motorsports complex, is that what it's called? Uh, are you able to get out on there quite a bit? Do you have it? Yeah. Yeah. Actually that, that works out really well. Um, and we'll circle back around to the COVID era, but, uh, ever since COVID hit, they've implemented a policy of renting the track in our blocks for a very reasonable amount of money. So that works out really well for, um, my clients that have the vintage cars in that they can come out on a Thursday afternoon, we'll run four cars around for two hours and, and then they're back home with the family and schedule permitting. As long as the track is, is vacant, we're able to gain access. So that the, the UMC, which is Utah Motorsports Campus, they've been fantastic at getting us access to the track service, and that keeps us alive. And I tested on that uh, on public road as well, which I'm sure has has some benefits to it as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, so you know, having been a, you know a driver, you've done coaching, uh, you know, you're a mechanic. You know, now that you find yourself in, in a leadership position, looking over, you know, all those different types of people, you know, is that do you? Is that something you think helps you, uh, you know, be a better, uh, be a better leader? Uh, you know, you've kind of been in everyone's shoes that's, that's in the shop. 
I would hope so, but you might have to ask some of my employees about that one. <laughs> might be my bad. But yes, obviously we 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 feel we've we've been there. We've been on upside down under the dashboard, um, you know, pulling long nights, having engine swaps on the race weekend. So, you know, oftentimes I try to get in there and give them a hand when when we're under those time crunches. Um, but yeah, it helps to have an understanding of of what they're enduring. Yeah, I, I think when we when we talk, when we're trying to set this interview up, uh, it was a car that you were trying to get ready that it seemed like was requiring a, a little bit more time than than was originally planned. You know how 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 difficult is that to to kind of manage? You, know, you have a racing team, uh, but you obviously then have you know customers that are doing club racing, the vintage racing. So you know it's, it seems like you can kind of get pulled in a lot of different directions. Yeah, that's tough, <laughs> but you know, ultimately you just got to say yes and you got to do your best to get it done. Um, and that, and that is the challenge of motorsports, right? You've got to make that next session. You've got to be out there for qualifying. So there's, there's, you know, there's no choice, whatever it takes. Yeah. And you mentioned the, the vintage cars before, you know, is that, um, yeah, talk about that. Is that really enjoyable to kind of get to, to, see cars that you might not see uh, every day and you actually get a chance to, to to work on them yeah and and hopefully to drive them as well i've been in a couple of them and we've got a couple of fresh ones in the shop here too but yeah it's you know i i always enjoyed the history of motorsports my my you know hero is jimmy clark right from the 60s so i've always been pretty familiar with with the earlier race cars and now to have uh, such fine examples of Can-Am cars in the shop is is amazing. You know, these things are a, a piece of history that, that we get to care for for a short period of time. And it's very interesting to see the engineering choices that were made at that time. Um, you know, the, the first car we got was uh, the 68 McLaren M6B that we have in the shop. And you look at that thing and you've got 30 gallons of fuel on either side of you. Um, one of the seat belts is bolted to the engine. The other one's bolted to the chassis. You know, just really weird things. And, you know, this thing has 660 horsepower um, and 700 foot-pounds of torque. So you can imagine it accelerates pretty hard. And you spend a little bit of time looking at places you shouldn't be looking, <laughs> wondering if you can get there. Uh, I was going to say, I was, is that a kind of a, a challenge as well, the... Um, obviously the safety precautions of those older cars are not what they are now uh, and then or just working on those cars in general is there a little bit of a fear of you know if this car goes on on track and something goes wrong you know you, you can't just necessarily turn turn around and, and and buy another one right yeah all of the above you know and, and that goes for you know everything from putting it out on track to to being meticulous when you work on it and ensuring that you leave no trace you know, we we don't want to put a scratch in the tub that's going to be there for the next thirty years. <laughs> and is there, a, yeah, is there a, a favorite that you've had come into the shop as far as a vintage car goes, or is the is the one that that hasn't come in yet that you uh, that you hope you get to work on someday? Well, there's certainly a lot of stuff out there that we'd love to see in the shop. But interestingly enough, out of all the cars we have, we just uh, recently uh, one of our clients brought in a Lotus Fifty One, which is a little cigar bodied formula ford from the late 60s and that car is near and dear to my heart again from having worked at that lotus shop up in california that was the second car i was exposed to and uh this car was also a former jim russell racing school car so i have a lot of ties to it um but th those early cars you know the jim clark lotus 49 era i think are some of the most beautiful race cars ever built so to have a, a smaller version of that is really neat yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure. Yeah, you know, how many? Uh, you know, for the younger people that 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 work in your shop as well, I'm sure that kind of gives them an appreciation of, uh, you know, you know those cars. But then also maybe the cars that they work on now. Um, you know, are, are the cars, the newer cars, easier to work on? Are they harder to work on? You know, obviously a lot more complex. But you know, what what are kind of the differences between you know a car made you know 50, 60 years ago and and ones that you work on that are a little bit newer? Wires. Lots of wires. <laughs> Don't let the smoke out of the wires. Uh, yeah, you know, it, that's very interesting in that we've got Can-Am cars from 66 all the way to 71. And A, it's really neat to see the evolution of the designs. But the 
1970 cars are very basic and yeah, it's pretty easy to work on, but by 71, they're starting to think more about that and the cars become modular and you can take the whole gearbox and rear suspension off as an assembly. So you, it's really neat to see the development in those early cars. And then, yeah, working on the new cars, basically the same elements exist depending on what car it is. You know, we've had some in the shop that were more difficult, you know, maybe a Janetta, right, which is tube chassis, and you're having to work around and access, you know, the bits and pieces through the chassis. Whereas the Aston Martin GT3 that we ran was incredibly simple to work on. There were a lot of parts, but once you got the body work off, you could get to everything uh, in the mechanical package. And again, sort of designed to be modular in that the engine just unbolts off the front of the car. Um, the gearbox is in the back with all of its ancillaries that's an assembly. So those ones are are very well thought out. Yeah, I was going to say, like, some of the cars that, that got dinged up at Daytona this weekend, it seems like they just bring a whole new rear end out. They bring out a whole new, you know, they, they just seem like they've got extras of everything out back, and they, they two little clicks, they take one off, they throw the other one on. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really impressive how quickly they can change out, uh, you know, large parts of the car. Uh, but, so in, in your shop now, you know, how many how many people do you have working there uh, in, in total? Yeah, so right now, again, it's a little bit slow for us. I have one employee that works with us full time. Um, in addition, he, he's contracted out to Flying Lizard for their SRO GT4 program. Um, and then we have a couple, three or four part time guys that come in when needed. And most of them are sort of the the younger crowd from the cart series. One of them is Ethan Rapp that ran in the IADF program. Um, another kid is Andy Nish who runs carts locally and, and also races at the, at Bonneville. Oh, okay. Nice. And the, you mentioned the, IA, the IADF program. Uh, can you, can you talk a little bit, talk about that a little bit more and then how did you, uh, how did you kind of get involved with that? So, yeah, that was an interesting opportunity that was a res direct result of COVID actually. <laughs> so, um, you know, when, when everything got shut down, the racetrack was pretty quick not to reopen, but to allow access to, to the racing service and the local kart series continue to run. So one of our clients, one of the owners of the Can-Am cars, uh, was spending a lot more time at the racetrack and was watching the carters, um, and seeing them, one of them make trans, uh, make a transition to racing in Miata in the NASA series. And he decided he wanted to provide an opportunity for some of the kids to move up into open wheel racing. So subsequently we bought two pro formula Mazdas that I built at the previous shop out here. And, uh, we put together a little program, uh, to run Ethan Rapp and Josh fine, um, for, for the year out in California in formula car challenge, which is a spec series. Um, they have F4, F3, Pro Formula Mazda and standard Mazda cars racing with them. So we were in the pro Mazda class, obviously, and it was very successful. We finished one, two in the championship. Um, Josh was Ethan Rapp won it. Josh was lucky enough to take an overall win at Sonoma. Um, so yeah, we had, you know, a, a really successful outing with them. However, subsequently there weren't any kids really in the pipeline that we knew of that were of the appropriate age to move up into, into those cars. So we have subsequently sold those cars, but there may be some other opportunities out there, um, potentially in, in the NASA, uh, national championship race here in Utah later in the year. Um, so we'll see what might develop on that end. Yeah. And that's, that's great to hear that, you know, uh, again, the other, you know, the other, the other drivers that we've talked to in the last couple of weeks is, you know, that, that can always be a bit of a stumbling block as to, you know, how. How exactly are you going to put together what you need to put together uh, to take the next step to, you know, to get out of a card and, and get into a, you know, get into a real car. And, you know, so that's great that, you know, someone else just saw an opportunity and, and wanted to kind of step in and step in and help. And, uh, you know, I think maybe not so much in Utah where you are now, but, you know, do you think there's a lot more drivers like that that might be in carding and doing really, really well and maybe don't even know what the next step to take is? Uh, yes, I, I I suspect you're correct there. And of course, I think the best thing they can do is go to school and get a marketing degree. <laughs> but uh, it, it is it is very challenging 
especially in open wheel. And, and I've been out of the open wheel scene, you know, that like the road to indie scene for, for many years now. So, um, I'm not sure exactly what kind of opportunities exist over there for up and coming drivers. Um, but you know, historically it's always been a struggle. Every, every step you take, um, is exponentially more expensive, uh, getting out of a cart, moving into a car and having a good coach to, to help you make the transition is very important. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is challenging. And, you know, for most of those kids, but my, my recommendation is always, you know, go find a good shop running good programs and sweep the floors. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Just kind of get your, get your foot in however you can. Yep. Um, yeah, definitely. So, and, and we're actually trying to do a little bit more homework on that front right now as well in, or in that we, we'd like to have a better access to the karting community so that we can potentially be considered for their move up to, uh, to the next level. Um, but again, without an open wheel program I here at UMC, that gets a little bit difficult because all the carters want to go to formula one. Uh, but there are drivers out there that are pretty realistic and, and realize that one of the best opportunities to to move into to car racing is in these sports car series because uh in a lot of classes you have a gentleman driver um and oftentimes they want to hire a quote-unquote pro or a younger driver um you know so they have a fast teammate and they have somebody to help coach them um and that is of course how rg3 program started for sro um so yeah it did that that that's someplace where these guys really should be looking, you know, if, if their open wheel, uh, attempts stall, then there's a lot of opportunities in the sports car paddocks. Yeah. I mean, and it seems like a lot of drivers, uh, you know, they might have a, a plan, but you know, they, they will just kind of jump into anything they can get in and, and go out and race. I mean, I think, you know, I think this weekend was, was a good example. You know, there was, there was IndyCar drivers, there was F1 drivers, uh, you know, there was, there was, I think there's even some guys from, from NASCAR, uh, that were in the Michelin pilot challenge on, on Friday. Uh, so, you know, would that kind of be your, your advice as well that, you know, get into whatever you can get into and, and, and get out and see what you can do. Yeah. Go race some lawnmower if you have to, <laughs> but yeah, you know, certainly you, you, you need to make your presence known. And I think that's maybe where I failed a little bit in my career in that, you know, if you didn't have a good season, a lot of times you were kind of discouraged and you didn't want to pick up the phone or go walking around the paddock. Um, so th that, that caused a couple of stumbling blocks for myself, but yeah, uh, you know, get yourself to Daytona, um, especially in November for the, you know, the, the first initial testing weekends there before the roar, um, get to the SRO races, meet the series managers. Those guys know what opportunities are out there. Um, and you know, put names to faces. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And uh, you met, you met in SRO a couple of times. Um, you know, can you just talk a little bit more about, you know, what, it, what is SRO and, and then, you know, what, what, what has your involvement, uh, been in that? I, I, I can tell from your background there, you've, you've had a, a reasonable amount of success, uh, in SRO before. Yeah. We had a couple of really good years with the G3 program. So SRO, um, is now, uh, basically not a worldwide race series, but a worldwide racing organization that uh, is the sanctioning body for uh, GT3, GT4, and TC racing here in America in a sprint format. So our longest race, well, our normal races are uh, 90 minutes for GT3 here in America. We do one eight-hour race at the end of the year. Uh, as opposed to IMSA with the 24s, the 10s, the 6s, and so on. Uh, it was formerly called Pirelli World Challenge and was sanctioned by SCCA. So we actually got started in about 2015. We built a, a Mustang V6 for the touring car category, and that was run by the owner of VP Racing Fuel, Steve Burns at the time, owner-founder. Um, a couple years later, uh, Drew Stavely met a gentleman named Frank Gannett at the Ford Performance Race School. And, you know, a, as mentioned before, Frank decided he wanted to go racing and he decided to hire Drew as his coach. Uh, we already had a, a relationship with Drew as I had spent some time working at the Ford Performance Race School as an instructor um, to fill in gaps at the shop. And we were already over in the SRO. So Frank decided to come and join us. Uh, we picked up a couple Janetta G55 GT4 cars to start with. And 
Drew was able to win uh, the Sprint X Am Championship in 2018. Uh, and then uh, we subsequently moved to the Mustang platform. Um, the Javana was a fantastic car, man. That is one of the funnest cars I've ever driven. Um, I got to race that one in the eight hours at Laguna a couple of years in a row with them. Uh, fantastic car. But the SRO was trying to move away from the boutique sports car manufacturers and and be more in line with the major manufacturers. So the Janetta being, you know, a lightweight, um, low purpose built race car didn't really fit in their in in their program any longer. And so we saw the need to to get some get one of the more mainstream platforms. So we chose the Mustang. Uh we picked up another championship in 2019. Um couple of race wins. That was a lot of fun. We had a great couple of years with the Ford. Um subsequently we moved up to an Aston Martin GT3 Vantage. And we kind of honestly we struggled with that car. We did not perform to our capability with it primarily due to a lack of testing um and then parts supply a little bit as well because again that was during the COVID area where getting parts across the oceans were was pretty difficult sure sure yeah and and you know how how challenging can that be to to switch from uh you know one type of car to another so so to make that switch you know uh from the mustang to uh to, to the austin martin you know what, what kind of goes into do you, do you kind of have an idea of what you're getting yourself into, or do you not really know until you until you make the switch? That, that's a good question. You know, the going from the Janetta to the Mustang was was relatively simple. You know, you're going from a purpose built race car. Uh, some of the challenges associated with that, as mentioned, getting around the tube frame to, to work on components, uh, and then moving into you know basically a production based car is is it's almost easier going that direction, but making the step up to the GT3, that, that was, that was a lot of work, uh, from all aspects, the pit equipment, um, the team resources needed, the personnel that was critical. Uh, I'd never, I, I didn't have any GT3 experience at that point. Um, nor did any of my full-time mechanics. So, you know, we had to staff up with a data acquisition engineer, a uh, proper race engineer. And then of course, wrap our heads around how to operate that car. Um, and yeah, er every time you move up a step, it's a little bit more challenging in that you just have to do everything a little bit better because the cars are so much more sensitive. Sure. And then, you know, like you said, you're, you're stepping into a, a category that you haven't been in before going up against teams that have been in that category before. So I'd imagine that the, you know, that kind of adds to the, and in terms of all the things you have to go and get, there's also a learning curve, um, you know, that only really kind of comes with experience. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, speaking of experiences, you, it, would you have thought, you know, uh, in 1993 that at some point you would find yourself over in in China competing in an, an F4 championship? How did how did that all uh, how did that happen, and and how did it go? Yeah, well, I guess in 1993 I would have wished that I was driving in China in something, uh, but I had no no idea I'd be over there. Um, so that that developed through our relationship with um, William Lee who is Geely USA's manager, basically. So Geely is a Chinese company, a car manufacturer. Uh, they also have ownership states with Mercedes and Lotus and Volvo. Um, and they had been building some racetracks over there. And Alan Wilson was designing them. And, you know, when Larry Miller passed away, um, 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 uh, they, they, they were looking for somebody to purchase the racetrack here and through Alan Wilson's relationships with this facility, uh, he was able to entice Geely to come over and have a look. Um, subsequently we had some other questionable, uh, individuals interested in potentially purchasing the racetrack and we put our eggs in the, in the China basket. Um, and subsequently, you know, built a river developed a relationship with, with William Lee and, uh, Bruno Carnero, um, was being assisted by Alan Wilson, uh, with funding for his karting program. Uh, so it kind of all fell together and we were you contracted to go over there and engineer Bruno. Wow. And, uh, how, how did they do? Oh, great. You know, <laughs> these, they, 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 these carters, they surprised me. Uh, and I think some of it might have a lot to do with simulators, but 
earlier on or earlier in my career, you know, when I, I didn't cart until late in my career. Um, so, you know, I, I, I didn't really have an understanding of what these kids were dealing with when they made the switch. But anyways, early on, my take on the whole thing was the carters were really good at low speed corners and they were really good racers, but oftentimes it seemed to take them a while to come to terms with the higher speed corners and, and having trust in the car and the aerodynamics and so on. Um, but all these, this latest generation, you know, whether it be Bruno, Josh, or Ethan, uh, they made the transition very quickly, surprisingly quickly, especially the kids that went straight from carts into the pro Formula Mazda because the pro Mazda is a pretty quick car. Um, Bruno, we had a little bit more time to develop him there. We ran him in a standard Mazda initially here at UMC, uh, in the local NASA championship. Um, and I think we had just gotten him a pro Mazda when we went to China. So he had, he had some time under his belt before we went over there, but yeah, he was immediately competitive with those guys. Um, you know, just a couple of the nuances that are specific to formula four gave us challenges, you know, learning how to do standing starts and, and things of that sort. Sure, sure. You talked about the trusting the, the, the downforce, you know, is that to me, that seems like something that I've never driven anything with, with, you know, with significant amount of downforce. Uh, how, how hard is that to, to get used to? Like that you're, you're saying that like, you just kind of, you need to trust that the car is actually going to turn at the speed that you're driving at. Like, what is the thing you kind of have to overcome when you do that for the first time? Yeah, you basically, yeah, just faith in the car's ability to go that fast in that particular corner. Like for me, it was never a, oh, okay, I pushed a little bit harder and the downforce came on and now I can go faster still. It, it, it always just seemed to be natural because from the Jim Russell school, we were running cars that at least had some downforce, not much, but um, but some. But yeah, it's, it's a matter of, you know, same thing, using your tools, using your feel for the tire to come to terms with how it feels at the limit and being able to, trust that it'll be there for you yeah yeah i, I can imagine that i'm sure it's a lot of fun once you you know once you start to trust it um but in the build up to that yeah i can see that it could be a little nerve-wracking um yeah and then you, you said that sim racing is, or uh yeah, sim racing is that uh, you know back in 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 the 90s you know certainly for for me as well you know that wasn't even a wasn't even a thing uh you know we we played Gran Turismo on the playstation uh how has that kind of evolved you know, in, in, in your time, uh, you know, and, and through all of your experience. Yeah. So same, you know, I, gosh, my, I think my Atari 2600 had a race car game <laughs> back in the day and you drove it with that little, that little wheel that went around 360 degrees. Right. And then we we're starting to goof around with, uh, I forget who made it, but there was an, uh, a PC indie car game in the nineties. Um, my roommate was an engineer, so we would, geek out at night. I do the driving. He'd set up the car. You know, we play that. Um, but I didn't really do much until R factor came along, you know, basically in the two uh, mid two thousands. Um, and that was pretty fun. You know, you had a, a wheel that bolted down to the desk and you get the lawn chair out and put your helmet on, <laughs> put your earphones in. Uh, but now it's amazing. I honestly have not spent a lot of time in simulators recently, but just a couple of weeks ago when uh, hung out with one of the the kids from one of the other shops here and he's got a proper one that moves um he's got the goggles right so you turn your head and you're looking at the sky or into the pits or wherever it might be uh it was amazing i had so much fun i was on that thing for about four hours that night and i think it really can be helpful you know a learning racetracks that's the big one uh you can just go pound laps so you know the place inch by inch and um, they're so accurate now it's like being at the at the real venue uh b you know yeah developing tools uh that we we don't really think about so i was fortunate enough to work with ross bentley over at speed secrets for a while and you know he has so many tips and tools and techniques for training race car drivers well, like for instance on the simulator one of the things that i emphasize are uh you know eyes uh hearing and foot pressure because we don't have g-forces to tell us how fast we're going or 
how close we are to the limit. What you feel with your hands is probably going to be pretty similar to what you'll feel in the race car. But what we really don't think about that is crucial, obviously, our eyes getting around the place. But your hearing plays a huge role in speed sensing, telling how fast the car is going. So not only, you know, just pounding laps, but thinking about all these different senses that we use to manipulate a car uh, can be very helpful during simulator uh, sessions. Um, The other place that it's playing a big role now is in chassis setup. You know, I was fortunate enough to have an amazing engineer for our GT4 days. That was uh, Zach Porter. Uh, He left for a little grassroots open wheel organization uh, over in Andretti working on their IndyCar. So we lost him to them. But uh, anyways, we got him, um, we helped him build a relationship with a company called VI Grade that builds driver and motion simulators for the manufacturers. And then subsequently the manufacturers race teams are using them too. So basically you've got a, the chassis of a car on a big gimbal floating around in the middle of a room. Um, and they can test vehicle dynamics and, and that type of thing with them. Um, Zach used their software to simulate our Mustangs and he got so good at it. We would unload, we might make it a damper change, but no major changes throughout a weekend and, you know, be running at the front of the field. So, you know, he'd power up his laptop and the thing would run overnight, go through like thousands of, of simulations of changes, you know, this sway bar with that spring, this damper setting with that wing package and zero in and, and get the car where we would unload and it would be fantastic. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, and imagine, yeah, that, that is pretty impressive. It saves a lot of time as well, right? I mean, track time is always so limited and there's only so many different, you know, setups that you can, that you can test out and, um, and then, you know, there's, there's feedback from the driver as well. So yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what, um, your plans for, for 2024 are, are still, uh, are, are kind of still in the works. Is that kind of how it goes this time of year? Yeah, it's it's happening a little bit later for us this year than in the past. Um, we we don't have anything on our plate right now, but we we've got some some phone calls that have been made and and some inquiries from different drivers for different series. So we have a couple possibilities. Um, in the SRO uh, last year, we were contracted by Racers Edge, excuse me, to provide support for a Honda TCX in the uh, in the TC class. Um, so we ran our transporter and our crew to support that car. Depending on what happens with Racer's Edge and their GT3 and TCX program this year, they may contract uh, at minimum our labor to support that TCX car, if not our entire program. Uh, and if that happens, then we'd be we'd hopefully be putting a second car in the truck as well. Um, other than that, over at at, at SRO, um, our, our greatest hope is to get a Mustang GT4 program going. Uh, it's getting late in the season to get started. Um, but SRO doesn't kick off till April. So we still have, have some time here. Um, and then in addition, we're looking at the Mustang challenge series that is being introduced by IMSA in the middle of the season. Um, we had a great time working with Ford, really enjoy the organization. Obviously they're going all in on motorsports right now and the Mustang brand. And so we'd really like to, to try and get a program with them again. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm I'm actually really excited to see uh, the the Mustang Challenge get started, uh, you know, later on later on this summer. So you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll see you involved in that. And uh, you know, we, we really appreciate your time. And uh, you know, we hope to hope to have you on again, uh, maybe later on this year to kind of see how everything's going for you. Great. Yeah, be happy to anytime, Thomas. All right, some really good stuff there from Ian. You know, don't think anyone ever really knows where their their journey in uh, in, in racing is going to take them. You know, starting off in in California, just trying to find a way to to get that you know that driving experience in a, a slightly safer legal way, uh, and then you find yourself you know in 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 China in an F four series, uh, and then you end up you know being a, a shop owner 
uh, out in Utah. You know, so always an, always an interesting uh, journey that, that you know the people that we've had on so far have been able to to take us through from you know how they got started and how they've ended up uh, where they are. And you know, our last couple uh, guests, you know, Ian and, and Nathan last week, and we also kind of see that it's. It's definitely a, a lot of work to kind of put together, you know, what it is exactly that you're going to do uh, every season that you decide that you want to go racing. You know, Ian's still trying to, to figure out exactly uh, what they'll be up to this year. Uh, like he mentioned, he's, he's hoping to be involved in the Mustang Challenge. And, uh, you know, that, that's that, that's a series that uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to. It's the first year of the Mustang Challenge. It's similar to the other uh, IMSA, you know, single make support series. Uh, there's there's one for you know Ferrari, Lamborghini. You know, of course, we talked about uh, the Mazda MX-5 Cup a couple times already, um, and and the Porsche Cup as well. Uh, so to see the the Mustang kind of join in and have its own single make series, uh, you know, it was pretty exciting. And and that of course comes alongside the the brand new GT4 and GT3 Mustangs that have already gotten their uh, you know season started. So really hope that uh that that comes through for for ian and and you know and for us as well uh you know that those those races you know all those single make races tend to be really close really tight racing uh from start to finish you know they're they're 40 45 minute races no pit stops uh no driver changes you know they just go out and it's a, it's a sprint for 40 minutes and uh you know and the racing tends to be pretty enjoyable to watch um so you know hopefully that works out and uh you know that'll give you someone to uh, to you know kind of root on and cheer for uh, in the Mustang Challenge this season. Uh, so yeah, so the, the next week, uh, no show next week. We've got some we've got some more interviews lined up uh, in in the weeks to come, but just a bit of a break. Um, so we won't be won't be on next week. It's a good opportunity if you haven't uh, caught all the episodes up to this one to listen to the ones that uh, that, that we've done already. Uh, you know, and also you know, be sure to check out uh, Ian Lacey Racing's check out his site and socials. I will link to all that in the episode notes, like we always do. And uh, you'll also link to a couple of the the stories about Andretti. Uh, you can read about Haas's uh, you know very exciting car launch. And be sure to subscribe to the pod as well. Uh, and you can join our Substack, which we will also provide a link to. Uh, Substack, you know, is a, a good way to kind of keep up with uh, the shows when they come out. Uh, some things that might happen in between the shows that, you know, aren't, aren't a full podcast that we'll like to put out. And uh, we also have a, a chat on the Substack as well, where we'd, we'd love to hear some of your feedback so far. Uh, you know, what you've liked about the show, what maybe uh, you, you'd like to see us do that could be a little bit better. If you have any ideas or, you know, guests that you'd like to try and get us to to try and get on the show and uh, so again any uh any and all feedback good bad or otherwise uh would be welcome if you head on over to the Substack, uh subscribe over there go into the chat and let us know what you think and if you follow us on Substack, and if you follow me as well we also do like to share uh some of the great writing uh on on motorsport that you can find on Substack. there's definitely quite a bit on there uh, so we like to kind of share some of that and pass that along as well uh, so if you like to read about uh, racing in addition to listening to it uh, that's another great reason to check us out over there uh, as again there's just there's so much good content that seems to be finding its way uh, onto that medium uh, so definitely check that out and we'll be able to kind of pass you on and uh, highlight some of the really great articles about racing that pop up over there uh, all the time so be sure to check it out uh, for that as well uh, and when we do come back in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be coming back with Stu from Off in the S's. Uh, is the pretty much the go-to YouTube channel for anyone who's interested in IMSA. Uh, so Stu will come on and he'll talk about you know what's already happened uh, with the Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona and what is to come with the IMSA season, uh, which still has you know of course uh, many 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 rounds to go. And uh, so he'll fill us in on you know what's new for this year and, and what to look out for. And, and why he finds uh, the IMSA series the one that he is, you know, uh, so involved and devoted to. Uh, and we've got a couple more interviews lined up after that. Hopefully we'll be able to touch on a little bit more uh, in the, the F1 world. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about the American drivers in F2 and F3 and uh, some other great interviews to come as well. So Nothing uh, nothing coming out next week, so hopefully you can catch up with what we've put out so far, and we will look forward to having you join us again in a few weeks' time.